Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Jill Wine Banks. This week, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the latest developments and investigation of the January 6th insurrection. We'll talk about DOJ's decisions to allow federal employees to testify and to not represent Mo Brooks in Swalwell's lawsuit and what that means for former President Trump. The testimony the House Committee heard this week from the police who protected the Capitol, and then we'll look at who we think should be subpoenaed next. Then we'll take advantage of the expertise of our two former U.S. attorneys to explain why the nominations for that position are so important and what it takes to get that job. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But first, I want to ask you all about possible sexism at the Olympics, from how Simone Biles has been treated, uniforms for the beach volleyball teams, and gymnasts, the elimination of runner Shakari Richardson for smoking a legal joint while allowing fencer Alan Hadzik to compete despite pending allegations of sexual impropriety by three different women. So who wants to start on that? Barb, you're our sports expert. Why don't you start on that? <laughs> yeah, so so much uh, uh, there to talk about, Jill. Um, I, I agree with you. Let me um, let me start with the uniforms issue because I think that is the one with the most blatant examples of sexism. You know, just before the Olympic Games, we saw this instance where a, a team handball team from the Netherlands. Uh, opposed the rule, the international rule that says they have to compete in bikini bottoms by having the audacity to wear shorts uh, to compete. And, you know, they were told that they were in violation of the rule that says you have to, and they have, you know, great detailed description about what the bikini bottom needs to look like. Same is true with the women who play beach volleyball about the, you know, the cut of the tank top they have to wear with the deep armholes and bikini bottoms, and yet the men only have to wear shorts and a tank top. Um, so that double standard, I think, is one that is coming home to roost. We see it in gymnastics, where the German team came out wearing long pants, as opposed to the skimpy leotard that we typically see. Um, and I, I think it's something that is uh, ripe for conversation. You know, one of the things that we're seeing in recent years is athletes who are speaking out and speaking up. There was a time when people like Michael Jordan said, you know, even Republicans buy sneakers. And so he was very cautious about what he said for fear of making political waves. But I think women who are athletes are calling out these double standards. Uh, they don't want to be seen as sexualized objects. They want to compete athletically on the field. And so uh, I think it's great that we're having these conversations and surprising how slowly the decision makers move. Um, but I suppose uh, the decision makers tend to be older, established, mostly white male uh, officials. And so, um, you know, getting getting them to move off some of these traditional positions sometimes takes a little bit of effort. You know, the Me Too movement seems to have really shaken something loose in our society, something that was long overdue to be shaken loose. And women are increasingly not waiting for someone else to rectify old injustices. They're speaking up and taking it on. Kim, I know you wrote about Simone Biles. I was so impressed by what she did this week. That cannot have been an easy decision for her to make at the Olympics, to stand up for her mental health and also to stand up for her team. 
And in addition to, you know, the sort of sexualization of sports that I think we see far too frequently in her situation and, and also with Shikari, I think it's hard to avoid the blatant overtones of, yeah. of racial animus here. This notion that Simone Biles somehow owed us something like she was supposed to perform without regard for her personal health. What were your thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, I cannot imagine how difficult it must have been. Um, And I am so in awe of the amount of bravery it took for her to recognize that she needed to say no in that moment. I mean, she went into the Olympics, probably the big, the, the most anticipated and athlete for all of the U.S. sports. Um, and she realized that if she pushed forward and chose to put everyone else's expectations among before her own well-being, um, she would have let not only herself down and her team down, uh, but she would have endangered herself and so, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, you know, talk in the, particularly in the beginning, that she was being selfish, that she was letting her teammates down, that she was letting her country down, um, that she was, you know, an entitled athlete who just, you know, was taking her ball and, go to, and going home. To me, it really resonated because I am certainly not an Olympic athlete and I have certainly not been on any stage, international stage of that level. Um, but just as a journalist, particularly as a black woman, in the last year and a half with everything that's been going on with the racial reckoning um, and in politics, I experienced severe, severe anxiety disorder. And I felt like I could not fail my jobs. You know, I kept pushing through, denying it, stuffing it down and putting the work first because I thought the work was too important. I thought what I did when I speak to y'all on this podcast or when I show up on MSNBC or when I write in the Globe, that it was too important for me to do that at this moment. And I was neglecting myself and I realized that that almost broke me and I needed to um, put myself first sometimes. I needed to engage in self-care, get some help. I, I have a wonderful therapist. I do a lot of work and meditation. Um, and I have said no a whole lot more than I used to before. And I recognize that in what Simone Biles did. And I hope that this serves as a lesson, particularly to Black women, because um, there's Uh, too little research in mental health in Black women, but what does exist, it shows that Black women are far more likely to suffer mental health stresses, in part because there is an expectation for us and a pride in us that we are strong, we are resilient, right? Um, We are supposed to hold it down, Um, but they're less likely, half as likely to seek help, and I would love to change that. Um, So I hope that's what the lesson for so many people walking away from this is. I got some, you know, I got some mail after my comment saying, why does it have to be about black people? Everybody was suffering. Yes, everybody was suffering, but both things can be true at the same time. It can be a particular crisis for a certain community. So I do hope that this serves as a lesson for that uh, moving forward. That would be a very good thing. You know, Kim, I love you so much for saying all of that, and I'm so sorry that you struggled, but I do think it's true. We impose so much pressure on black women. That's not to say other people have not suffered, but but I hope all of us can learn something from this, and, and I thank you for your thoughtful writing. It'll be in our show notes for everyone to read if you haven't seen it already. I was so excited to get, you know, sort of a a bra top and a pair of shorts from Girlfriend Collective. I'd been looking at the brand and it was so exciting to get start using it. 
I really like them, but now I'm down to the shorts because my daughter stole the bra. <laughs> have you had a chance to wear yours, Kim? I have. I really, at this point, uh, I hardly ever do yoga without it. I have a drawer full of yoga clothes, but the Girlfriend Collective um, yoga top and, and leggings that I wear um, are just so comfortable. And I've been trying to, you know, be mindful and do that every day. And so I'm going to wear them out. I'm going to I'm going to need to get a few more pair. Uh, how about you, Jill? I love it. But I'm especially fond of the skort. And it was one of the first things I packed for my trip to Memphis, because I saw the temperatures were in the 90s. And I thought I could be stylishly dressed and still cool and comfortable with my girlfriend collective skort. I highly recommend it. It was perfect. And it folds up into nothing, of course, because it's a great fabric. And I know, Barb, with all of your sports activities, you must be enjoying it. Yeah, I too like the skort, Jill. But to me, the best feature of the Girlfriend Collective um, products, the leggings and the, and the skort, um, are the pockets. Thank you yes. uh, for putting pockets yes. on a garment. Um, I could go for hours on the virtue of the pocket. Um, I can't live without pockets. And uh, the fact that pockets come uh, with the skort and the leggings, to me, um, is, a, is a, a real selling point. Yes, yes, I agree. And and I agree with Jill, too, that they travel great. You can you roll them up and put them in there and they look great as soon as you take them out. So Girlfriend Collective is sustainable, ethic, ethically made activewear with their inclusive sizing from XXS to 6XL, their incredible bras, leggings, shorts, tank tees and skorts and swimsuits are the perfect choice for everyone. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective has functional fabrics, colors, and styles for any activity. And all their clothing and packaging are 100% recyclable. Well, as I said, their best-selling leggings come with pockets and have different levels of support. You can find the perfect fit for you. But my favorite thing about Girlfriend Collective is their garment take-back program. They call it Re-Girlfriend. When you change styles, you can return pieces for upcycling into new girlfriend gear. So join us and join the collective today. Girlfriend Collective is offering hashtag sistersinlaw listeners who are first-time customers $25 off purchases of $100 or more. Go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. That's $25 off $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. Again, girlfriend.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our show notes. Let's move to our first topic, which is an update on January 6th. And Barb, would you take over for here? Yeah, I'd love to. I do want to note for the record, Jill, that I am today wearing my Megan Rapino USA women's soccer jersey in honor of the USA Olympic team. Woo-hoo! So as we talk about Olympic uniforms, I am suited up and ready to go. Um, Are you wearing this, bikini bottoms? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no comment on the bikini bottoms. You can't see me from the waist down. That's probably best. Um. But back to January 6th, this week we got some new information surrounding Donald Trump's efforts to subvert the election results. Even beyond the events of January 6th, uh, the New York Times has reported that in December, 
President Trump pressured acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to investigate election fraud with daily phone calls. At one point, telling Rosen, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me. So that is certainly going to get the attention, I think, of the Select Committee on the January 6th attack, which held its first hearing this week. The witnesses at that hearing were four police officers who were on duty at the Capitol on January 6th. I thought their testimony was incredibly compelling as they described what one officer compared to hand-to-hand combat on a medieval battlefield. So, Kim, let me start with you, and and let me ask you first about the makeup of that select committee. Speaker Nancy Pelosi invited two Republicans to join the committee, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and she refused to seat two others, uh, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan. How do you think that decision played out? Well, I think it ended up playing out uh, by really elevating Liz Cheney at a time that she had really um, lost all, just about all of her stature in that conference uh, at the hands of Republican leadership. So initially, Nancy Pelosi puts, uh, initially, Nancy Pelosi invited um, Republicans to add six members to the committee. And as you said, two of them, uh, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, were rejected uh, by Nancy Pelosi, not just because they voted against certifying the results of the election, but also because of the big lie, frankly, that they had been perpetuating about election fraud and the the other things that they had said, uh, not only about the election, but about January 6th itself. So as a result, Kevin McCarthy pulled all the members uh, from the committee, and Nancy Pelosi, and Nancy Pelosi invited uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Congress uh, Congresswoman Cheney, and Congressman Kinzinger on board. What that does is give them all of the time that the other six lawmakers would have had, and Liz Cheney really. Uh, took that opportunity to really lay out clearly that she intends to work on this committee to let the facts lead them to their uh, conclusions and to doggedly investigate those facts. Now, keep in mind, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, too, they are no friends of Democrats. They disagree with Democrats on everything on policy. They are very conservative. But on this, they agree that this was a serious attack on democracy, and they are trying to get to the bottom of it. So I think what happened by this move by McCarthy may have backfired if his goal is to try to minimize Liz Cheney by pulling these other members, it really elevated her statue on that committee, her stature. Yeah. And then and then I want to turn to the substance. So, you know, is the first witnesses, the committee called for police officers to testify. Why do you think the committee started there And what stood out for you during their testimony? Yes, I think that it was a really important place to start because these are members of law enforcement, folks who um, have certainly have the support or or Republicans have claimed to support uh, at all this time. And they were at ground zero. They were at the front line of this attack and hearing from uh, Sergeant Antonio Gonell and officers Daniel Hodges, Michael Fanone and Harry Dunn. If, you, if our listeners have not yet listened to their testimony, please listen to it. If at the very least, just listen to their opening statements. It is so 
shocking, gut-wrenching, and horrifying, and really, really important. And so what I took away from it are really three key points when we're talking about this committee, what they're trying to get to. The three, I'm going to take a word from our last episode, probative. Um, The three probative points that I think are really important is that it dispelled this idea that former President Trump and other Republicans have said that this was nothing but a group of tourists or people were being loving at this event. These officers described being threatened to be killed with their own gun. They described being crushed against a metal door uh, and screaming in pain. They described being kicked, being assaulted, and being insulted at the same time and called traitors. This was a violent, violent attack, and their testimony gets right to it. The other part of it is that... um, they talked about the white nationalist element, which I really hope this committee gets to the bottom of, because it will not only explain what happened on January 6th, it will help enlighten Americans about the threat, ongoing threat, uh, that white national extremism uh, poses right here domestically. Um, two of the officers, officers, uh, officers Dunn and Gonell, described the racial slurs that were hurled at them in the midst of this, that they were called words that I will not repeat here, um, and just how racially vicious this attack was. And even uh, Officer Hodges said at one point, they tried to recruit him saying, hey, you should be on our side. Aren't you on our side? Yeah, are you Are you our brother? Are you our like brother? Um, yeah. a, in an attempt to recruit this. So there was clearly not just in the motivation in organizing this, but in the actual event itself, a white nationalist element. And it also uh, talked about the fact that these people were self-proclaimed Trump supporters saying that Trump sent them, which is a very salient part to this investigation. What role did Donald Trump play? At least in their eyes, they thought they were sent there by the former president, which is a huge piece of this investigation. So I think this testimony was just really, really crucial. I agree with you, Kim. I was deeply moved by hearing the testimony. And for me, one of the most outstanding facts or visuals was seeing Officer Hodges in his uniform calmly describing and then seeing adjacent to that the picture of him being squeezed in the door and screaming in pain. It's an image that no one can watch and not be affected by. So I I agree with you. I hope that everyone has seen it. Um, But the most shocking thing to me was how Fox News covered this testimony, claiming that these were, you know, crocodile tears and made up stories. I, I just I have no words to describe how horrible I felt listening to how they distorted what we had seen. You know, I think that's worth pointing out. And if if you flip the, the shoes here and if Democrats had taken this sort of approach against law enforcement, I think you would have seen outrage from across the country from law enforcement leaders directed at that treatment. But there were really crickets um, in this instance. Nobody standing up for law enforcement outside of the Democrats in Congress. You know, and and that sort of feeds into something that I noticed here with some relish. Barb, you and I had this experience of testifying in Congress. I think we touched on this last week. And there were some members of Congress when we testified about the Mueller report who weren't very interested 
in looking at the substantive matter ahead of them. Instead, what they wanted to do was just score political points and, and you know, just sort of create um, some sort of a clip that could run on Fox. We didn't have any of that with this hearing. I thought that there was an admirable absence of political grandstanding. What this was, was a simple ex, uh, exercise in taking testimony from these four officers. It was really effective. I hope the Democrats will think about shifting to prime time for the next hearing. Yeah, and you know, something that stood out to me, I thought um, the chairman, Benny Thompson, did a really terrific job, one, in setting the tone that this would be a very sober task. Um, but the way he ended it is so appropriate. He asked each of the four officers, what do you think our goal ought to be in our investigation? And um, one of the officers, Officer Harry Dunn, said something I thought was amazing. He said, um, the analogy that comes to mind is the analogy of a hitman. You know, when you have a hitman involved, um, you go after the hitman, but you don't stop there. You also go after the person who hired the hitman. I would like you to get to the bottom of that. And I thought that was uh, extremely important. The other thing that impressed me was when um, Officer Hodges, the one who'd been pinned in that door, repeatedly referred to these attackers as terrorists. You know, not the mob, not the attackers, not the rioters, not the protesters, but the terrorists again and again. And when he was asked about it, he said, I don't use that word lightly. And he used he, he shared the legal definition of domestic terrorism, which is, you know, essentially um, acts of violence that are illegal, dangerous to human life um, for the purpose of intimidating or coercing a civilian population or influencing government policy. And that, that's exactly what happened that day. So I thought um, those, they were all so impressive um, and, and prepared and told very compelling stories. Well, let's let's Hey, hey Barb, before we move on, can I just share a really wise woman had what I thought was a great tweet on this last point that you made. Um, Barb McQuaid tweeted this, and I thought she was dead on the money, referencing one of the old Trump tweets where he had talked about uh, the big lie. And she says, Jan 6 committee needs to confront the spark that ignited the attack. Trump has radicalized domestic terrorists the way ISIS leaders radicalize violent extremists. I'm in total agreement with that, and I hope the January 6th committee fully investigates it. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to watch as as this unfolds. We don't have a date yet for their next hearing, but um, I think there is hope that they will meet again before the August recess. But let me shift gears a little bit and Jill ask you about, um, there was another significant development this week that aligns with this story. This came from DOJ that could really open the floodgates for the January 6th committee, uh, especially in light of that new reporting from the New York Times about Trump's repeated daily calls to acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. Uh, DOJ issued a letter to former Trump administration officials pertaining to congressional investigations into claims of election fraud and the January 6th attack. Can you tell us about that letter and what it might portend for the January 6th committee's work? Absolutely, because it's really important. Um, And and there was a second letter that just has been revealed now, which also says that Donald Trump's tax returns must be turned over by the Department of Treasury to Congress because the law says if Congress asks, Congress shall receive. Um, But to your point, there's a series of letters that went out to administration officials, including the former um, Jeffrey Rosen, Attorney General, and his deputy, Patrick, um, I'm sorry, Richard Donahue, 
as well as some other officials in the Department of Justice, which basically says this is an extraordinary case. And so even though professional lawyers within the department and department officials have to keep things confidential, there is an exception when there's a real need for it. And in this case, we're waiving and saying that all former officials can testify. And that links very well with what you just said, which is the revelation of the notes of Richard Donahue saying that Donald Trump repeatedly called and pressed them to just say, you are investigating this fraud and leave the rest to me. That sounds a and, lot like which, uh, what course, he said to the Ukrainian president, doesn't it? Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I was just going to point out was it is just say you're investigating mm -hmm. and don't worry about whether you really are or not. That is exactly one of the things that was brought up in the second impeachment and does show a pattern or practice of behavior from Donald Trump that's worth noting for sure. But what's important is that we may be able to get to some of the information and facts about not just who was trying to interfere with the election results and to overturn the election, but may also be grounds for investigating further what role he played in fomenting the insurrection that led to the police officers testifying in the dramatic way they did. So it, it went to a number of officials, uh, each got a separate letter saying, you can testify. And I think that anybody else that Congress wants to hear will now be able to fully share their experience. And it is looking like it's leading to key evidence against the person that we're saying needs to be investigated, the person who sparked the fire. And this is all good. Yeah, you know, uh, after some early decisions that seemed to me uh, going out of his way to favor the Trump administration. Merrick Garland at DOJ is suddenly making a lot of decisions that seem to be what the law and facts and transparency require. And we had another one, Joyce, this week that DOJ made a decision, uh, made a filing in a lawsuit brought by Representative Eric Swalwell that has, I think, some significance for the fact finders about the January 6th attack as well. Can you tell us about that decision? Yeah, I think you're right. This does have a lot of significance. And this is the civil case. We've discussed it before, filed by California Representative Eric Swalwell. He alleges civil rights violations, intentional infliction of emotional distress, aiding and abetting assault, and, and other uh, civil charges. This is a civil case, not a criminal case against a group of defendants, among them uh, Alabama Representative Mo Brooks, not my representative, um, the former president, his son Donald Jr., and Rudy Giuliani. So one of the defendants in this case, Mo Brooks, asked the Justice Department to represent him in the lawsuit. And if this feels a little bit familiar, it's because one of the decisions Barb is referring to is an earlier decision by DOJ that it would represent Donald Trump in the lawsuit filed by E. Jean Carroll, where she alleges that he defamed her in connections with her allegations of a 20-year-old rape. But to the Swalwell suit, Brooks essentially asks DOJ to step into his shoes, and the law actually lets the government do that for employees of the government who are acting within the scope of their official duties. It's pretty well established that members of Congress are employees of the government for this purpose. 
But it's not just Mo Brooks getting a free lawyer from DOJ that's at stake here. Because what happens if DOJ agrees to represent Brooks is that DOJ would actually move to step into the lawsuit as the defendant. It would be the government who would become the defendant, and Mo Brooks would be dismissed from the lawsuit. And because the government is immune from being sued for this sort of civil torts, the case would, in essence, go away. In other words, Brooks is asking to get away without any responsibility for his conduct on January 6th. Fortunately, DOJ was not inclined to buy in this time like they did in the E. Jean Carroll case. And they made a decision that Brooks was not, although he was an employee, not acting within the scope of his duties. That might seem pretty common sense to all of us, right? Because (laughs) when has sedition ever been a legitimate occupation for a member of Congress? But DOJ slices and dices it a little bit differently, saying that he's engaging in campaign activity, not in the official business of the Congress. So while Brooks can still ask a judge to force DOJ to participate, he still has that ability. I think it's unlikely that a court overrules this Lawsuit can go ahead against Brooks, and this portends the same treatment for Trump. Analytically, there's no reason that DOJ would step in to represent him here. Yeah, I think um, the the uh, developments that you just described, Joyce, and that Jill just described are a really big deal, and they demonstrate why it matters so much that you have people in, of integrity at the Justice Department. I think for four years, uh, William Barr and Jeff Sessions worked really hard to do just the opposite, to protect Donald Trump by issuing these Office of Legal Counsel opinions uh, that said things were privileged and didn't need to be turned over and other things. And now that we've got people of integrity at the Justice Department, I, I think the floodgates are going to open and we're going to see all these documents that were hidden for so many years. So we'll we'll keep track of these January 6th hearings in the weeks to come. Can I just add, Barb, that to Joyce's point, the opinion really went beyond just saying we aren't going to represent Mo Brooks. It said because not only was he not acting within the scope of his job, and first of all, just going back to our point about how people dress, anybody who was dressed the way he was in basically hunting gear and a metal protector uh, was not dressed for going to Congress. But it went beyond that. It said it is not the job of any federal employee to do this. So that was a warning to anyone else who might ask the department to substitute itself for them as a defendant. And I think that's important to note as a warning to Donald Trump that he won't get represented. Kim, are you using your Function of Beauty products? You know, I am. I have to admit, I was a little skeptical about hair care products because they don't always work for black women. But if you go to the Function of Beauty site and take the quiz, you can describe exactly the type of hair that you have. And I described that I have very, very curly, tightly coiled hair that needs lots and lots of moisture. And I got shampoo and conditioner that my hair absolutely loves. I use it all the time. What about you, Jill? Same thing. I took the quiz and they produced a product that met my needs and expectations. And they did it in a way that allows me to see in the shower without reading a label, which bottle is the shampoo and which is the conditioner, because I selected a color for the shampoo and a clear color, just plain white for the conditioner. 
And so you don't have to struggle when you're in the shower trying to figure out which is which. So I love that. That's really smart. You know, Function of Beauty is the world leader in customizable beauty, offering the perfect formulas for your hair's needs. To get started, take a quiz about your hairstyle and goals. Choose your color and fragrance. Go fragrance and dye free, which is what I did. Uh, or switch them up based on how your hair looks and feels in each season. After the quiz, Function of Beauty will send you your 100% customized formula along with a regimen card with recommendations on when and how to use your products. And Function of Beauty also just launched an amazing subscriber program, Function with Benefits. Subscribing gets you discounts on every order, a free treatment every four orders, access to exclusive fragrances and colors, early access to new products, and more. That's a really exciting piece of news. It is. So turn your good hair days into a good hair life. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash sisters to take your quiz and save 20% on your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash sisters to let them know you heard about it from our show and to get 20% off your order. Functionofbeauty.com slash sisters or look for the link in our show notes. And it's not just shampoo. I just ordered a special uh, product for facial cleansing, and it's fabulous. Ooh. So, and again, same thing, customized. I highly recommend it. Before we leave the topic of January 6th, let's all say who, besides the former guy, we want subpoenaed. And Kim, why don't you start that conversation? Yes. So I get to be Oprah in this part of the conversation and say, you get a subpoena and you get a subpoena and you get a subpoena. The uh, committee that we... You do that pretty well, Kim. (laughs) I want to be Oprah so badly. So I've been practicing. Um, So the committee, of course, has some... uh, The January 6th committee has subpoena power. Uh, to bring in people to testify as to what they know and other information that they can provide about January 6th and the events leading up to that. And so I want each of us to say who we think ought to be on that list. This will not be uh, exhaustive, but just some folks. I will start. I think one of the people who should be subpoenaed is Mark Meadows, who is a former member of Congress and, of course, was serving as Donald Trump's uh, chief of staff on and before January 6th. And I think the reason uh, is, especially given the new news we we mentioned today about Donald Trump uh, pressing the Justice Department and, you know, who knows who else, honestly, uh, to try to aid him in the attempt to try to hold on to power by denigrating the election results and claiming that they were fraudulent. Nobody was close to him except maybe save his family. Uh, Then Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows was right there. He was his chief of staff. He was a close confidant. By then, his circle of trust was pretty small. Uh, And I think that the commission really would like to know what he knew. I also think that Mark Meadows, at least of all the people that are close to him, has has had at least little snippets of honesty. If you recall, for example, when Donald Trump was hospitalized, uh, when he contracted COVID-19. Mark Meadows was standing out in front of the podium saying that the president was fine, strong, in control, uh, but at the same time was going off the record uh, 
to reporters telling uh, them that the situation was actually pretty serious um, and having some, you know, glimpses of honesty there. So perhaps he could be convinced to do that again. Perhaps these are his former colleagues in Congress that will be talking to him and they can get some really um, probative information from him in a way that I think other people close to him may be prone to just lie. Uh, So Jill, who would you like to see get a subpoena? It's so hard to pick just one. Um, And I'm actually changing who I picked. Originally, I said it should be the acting secretary of defense, Christopher Miller, uh, who did not dispatch troops promptly to protect the Capitol. But I think given the news today about Richard Donahue's notes, I think that he knows a lot and would be a very interesting person for Congress to be able to ask about the conversations pressing the Department of Justice to do something that it clearly would have been improper for it to do. So I'd like to see him subpoenaed, uh, of course, along with Rosen, who was the target of this pressure. Yeah, I think Rosen is almost a given. Uh, That's a good one. How about you, Barb? Yeah. Well, um, I I think that it's probably an obvious choice to subpoena Christopher Wray, FBI director, uh, to find out why there was this intelligence failure, when I think most of us who follow the news even casually could have seen this coming a mile away. I want to know more about that. But I think if I got just one subpoena uh, and it was uh, was guaranteed to be effective, I would subpoena Ivanka Trump. Um, There is reporting that she has she was with Donald Trump all day and that she was trying really hard to persuade him to make a public statement to the protesters, to the mob, to the terrorists, uh, to leave the Capitol that day. And he refused for hours. So I'd like to hear that conversation. Um, I think she is someone who might be in a position to talk about what his motive was when he gave that speech at the Ellipse, whether he intended to incite the crowd when he uh, you know, told them that they had to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, um, and what was happening as those events were unfolding while he was you know, apparently watching on television. What was he saying? What was he doing? Were they discussing calling out the National Guard? So I think all of that is really relevant to his role in inciting and uh, failing to step in and stop the insurrection. Yeah, I think that's a good one. I mean, recall on that day, she also uh, initially tweeted uh, calling the insurrectionist uh, patriots. But since leaving the White House, uh, she and Jared have uh, both uh, reportedly tried to distance themselves from Donald Trump. So I think that would make for a very interesting witness. Uh, last but not least, Joyce, who would you give a subpoena to? Oh, golly, Kim, who wouldn't I give a subpoena to at this point, right? I mean, they all need them. Um, But I'll tell you, mine is just from a place of personal curiosity. There are so many good candidates if you only get one subpoena. My pick is Roger Stone. Y'all will remember Roger Stone has been so instrumental in the president's, the former president, thank God, in his misconduct from early on, right? He was allegedly, and this became part of the criminal prosecution against him, the conduit for communications between the campaign and the president personally, and through the folks that were dropping uh, emails from Hillary Clinton and other members of the Democratic Party. He's always seemed to be a pipeline. 
And isn't it amazing that Roger Stone shows up in Washington, D.C. with Proud Boys or, or something along those lines as apparent security guards around the events of the 5th and the 6th, but he actually makes a point of staying in his hotel on the 6th. He doesn't go even to the rally, doesn't proceed to the Capitol, almost like could it be that Roger Stone knew that something was up and after his narrow escape with justice, uh, he decided that he needed to stay away? So look, I'd like to get him under oath in a forum where he has to testify truthfully, knowing that Donald Trump no longer can exercise a pardon power that can save him. Do I think we'd get the truth out of him? I'm not sure, but I'd like to hear him ask questions about what he knew about what was planned, what was going on, and particularly whether he had conversations with Trump or Trump associates like Rudy Giuliani or members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers about whether or not there had been any planning to disrupt Congress as it was getting ready to certify the election. I think that's the one that interests me the most. These are all really, really good. And we will certainly be looking with bated breath as to who the committee does subpoena. We will have much more to talk about that in episodes ahead. Hey, Joyce, will you tell me the one about the fast growing trees? The one about fast-growing trees is one of my favorite ones. You know, I'm a longtime customer for the last several years, and in fact, we have a kumquat tree that's full of kumquats on our back deck and a Meyer lemon tree that's loaded with blooms uh, on our front porch because the products are, are really great. I mean, I'm, I'm going to just have to rave for a minute here. I love their plants because they show up in, in great shape. They grow really well and surprisingly quickly. They, they fill out. And for us, you know, having these summer fruits is really pretty amazing. Yeah, it sounds terrific. And I just like saying the word kumquat. It's not a word I get to say very often. <laughs> well, they're delicious. They're one of my favorites and they're hard to find in the stores. And, and you know, that's true of many of their plants. They're plants that you won't find in your local nursery. So no matter what your gardening goals are, there's a better way to plant your garden. You can skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. And think about it. No waiting in line, no messy cars, no lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants, expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Shade, privacy, fruit trees, or added color in your yard. Every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, ready to explode and grow. And planting season is here. So join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. The best part, the 30-day alive and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. If you've ever ordered plants online, you know how much that guarantee means. So from now through August 31st, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash sisters for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash sisters. Again, fastgrowingtrees.com slash sisters. Or look for the link in our show notes. Before going to our listener questions, I'd love to have Joyce and Barbara talk about their nomination process for U.S. Attorney, how they were selected to serve, 
as U.S. attorneys under President Obama and why these appointments are important and what the current status of nominations are. So let's start by talking a little bit about the role that U.S. attorneys play, because last week, President Biden nominated his first eight United States attorneys in some districts that you might expect, some of the big ones like the District of Columbia and Massachusetts, but also in the Indiana districts and in Maryland. There are 93 U.S. attorneys nationwide, one for each of the 94 federal districts. And actually, if you'll notice that numerical discrepancy, 93 U.S. attorneys and 94 Uh, districts. This is your Jeopardy trivia question for this week on hashtag sistersinlaw. The reason that there is one uh, fewer, as my husband would say, one fewer U.S. attorney than there are districts is because Guam and the Mariana Islands share a U.S. attorney. But back to the subject matter at hand, you know, it used to be that U.S. attorney, that was a pretty obscure job. And then during the Bush administration, U.S. attorneys were fired for political reasons. That's, I think, the first event that put U.S. attorneys on the public radar screen. And of course, over the last four and a half years, people have become familiar not with just the job, but with some of the more influential U.S. attorneys in the country. So, It's logical for us to discuss what the job involves and how you become one. And Barb, that seems like the perfect question for you to start us off with. Oh, Trace, I I know you share this view that I loved serving as U.S. attorney. I think it's the greatest job a lawyer can have. uh, And I was so honored to to do it every single day. Um, The U.S. attorney leads a local U.S. attorney's office. And those are the local branch office of the Justice Department all over the country, out in the field, we sometimes call it. Um, And the offices vary in size. Some are very large, large urban areas. Some are smaller and more rural. Um, But the U.S. attorney is charged with uh, enforcing criminal and civil law in their district. And so um, if there is a, a federal crime that occurs, like public corruption or white-collar crime or a terrorist attack, uh, it is the U.S. Attorney's Office that investigates and prosecutes that crime. The U.S. Attorney is also charged with uh, handling civil matters. Some of those are affirmative c- civil cases. We did affirmative civil rights cases, uh, affirmative fraud cases when the government was the victim, and we also defended the government in court when the defendant was sued as a defendant. Um, and so the work is incredibly rich and rewarding and satisfying. Uh, the prosecutors have a great deal of discretion, uh, and that's part of what makes it so satisfying. Um, But it's also a really important job. Uh, Former Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson gave a speech that many U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys refer to. And in that speech, he said that the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. His discretion is tremendous. And then it goes on to talk about all the good things that a prosecutor can do and also all the bad things that a prosecutor can do if they do not approach the job uh, with integrity. Uh, But it's a tremendous job and uh, I think a tremendous opportunity for a president to install people to advance his policy agenda in the field. And so, you know, when you see delays in the appointment, I think it's a real missed opportunity. Yeah, you know, 
the Justice Jackson speech, which I think virtually every federal prosecutor uses as a touchstone, reminds me of something I haven't thought about in a long time. But Barb, like you, I'm sure you had this experience. I had to go up to Washington for the interview to determine whether or not I would be the U.S. attorney. They were considering me. And I had a really wonderful meeting with a lot of folks in the leadership. And the last person I spoke with was then Attorney General Eric Holder, um, who was really one of the best bosses I've ever had. And he mm-hmm. said something to me that really encapsulates my experience and my goals and what I felt obligated to do as a U.S. attorney. You know, at the end, I said, well, what do you want me to do? You know, now that you guys looks like you're going to nominate me and put me in place, what are my marching orders? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, just do the right thing. And so in my office, every morning as I walked in, there was a wall that had photographs of all of my predecessors in office. And one of those predecessors is someone who's probably obscure if you don't live inside of Alabama. But in Alabama and on the 11th Circuit, he's a legendary civil rights judge, Frank Johnson, who uh, imposed in so many of the civil rights cases in first the Fifth Circuit and then the Eleventh Circuit when he shifted over these groundbreaking civil rights decisions, you know, integrating the Alabama state troopers and supporting voting rights and rights for people who were in mental health facilities. And every morning I looked at his picture and I thought back to what General Holder had said and thought, my job is just to do the right thing. And what a really great set of marching orders. But um, so, Jill, Barb and I have this one view right from the inside. We did the job. We really venerate the job. And we have our view of what U.S. attorneys do. You've had other roles, both in government and outside of government. And I'm interested in your assessment of the role U.S. attorneys play and, and the value that they bring to our communities. So before I answer your question, I have to point out that in Justice Jackson's speech, the U.S. attorney is a he. Every <laughs> reference is his discretion. Mm-hmm. He can have. Um, and so at the time that I served in the Department of Justice, that was 100% true. And I am so proud that it is no longer true and that you and Barb uh, represent the face of U.S. attorneys around the country now. Um, in terms of my role, I served in Maine Justice and tried cases around the country. And so in doing that, I, of course, encountered and worked with U.S. attorneys around the country and came to respect their role and their job. But the most important thing is that they, as you said, were doing the right thing. That was the same advice that we got at Maine Justice. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you have to do justice. You have to pursue the facts where they go, and you have to be be pursuing basically justice. So my view of of them is pretty much the same as yours. Um, I would also stress, because being at Maine Justice, I saw not just criminal prosecutions, but the civil side, which people so often, and even in Justice Jackson's, I think every reference he makes is to the criminal prosecution side, as opposed to looking at things like civil rights, the environment, antitrust. Those are all areas of civil enforcement that U.S. attorneys have, and it's very important. Um, But I think the basic fundamental thing is that it's the same whether you're a justice lawyer 
or whether you're a civil, uh, you know, you're in, in private practice, um, ethics and fairness and justice is what is really important. It's not just that you're representing the United States of America. It's that you're trying to pursue the department's goal of justice. And that's why what we've seen so recently from President Trump and the pressure that he was putting on the Department of Justice is so awful because it has always been treated as something separate and apart where there is some independence. And that's really important to me. Jill, I'm really glad that you emphasize the work that's done on the civil side of U.S. attorneys' offices. You know, civil divisions will tell you that they sometimes feel like the redheaded stepchild, and the criminal division gets all of the attention. But some of the work that my office did that I was the most proud of, of them for doing was on the civil side of the office. I was even um, accused by some folks who didn't like what we were doing of running a plaintiff civil rights law firm um, on the second floor of my office where the civil division lived. But they successfully challenged um, Alabama's somewhat racist immigration bill, HB 56, did a lot of pro-voting rights work, and generally really tried to make sure that while the criminal division was keeping the community safe, they were making people's lives better. I thought one of the honors of being a U.S. attorney was getting to engage um, in the work on that side of the office. So, Kim, we know that President Biden has explicitly valued diversity in his judicial nominations, and he has openly expressed his desire to expand the kind of people that take the federal bench, civil rights lawyers, public defenders, people from small firms. What do you read into these first eight nominations for U.S. attorneys? Do you think he has similar objectives here? I think he absolutely does. First, I will say, as somebody who in private practice was a member of the plaintiff's bar, uh, civil justice is incredibly important. We should have that as a topic on a future episode. Um, we should. That's a great idea. <laughs> but yes, in the nominations for U.S. attorney that we have had so far, uh, President Biden said he made his choices uh, for each based on their, quote, devotion to enforcing the law, their experience and credentials, and their dedication to pursuing equal justice for all. But in looking at some of these nominees, there are so many firsts. And we have to take a minute to say that we are in 2021. So in a way, the fact that we are just getting some of these firsts now shows how much ground that needs to be made up. Uh, but for all the reasons that you mentioned, to have uh, U.S. attorneys' offices that represent and understand the communities that they cover is so crucially important. And there are a lot of firsts. So, for example, Zachary Myers uh, would be the first black U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Indiana, if confirmed, uh, as would Clifford Johnson would be the first black lawyer to lead the Northern District of Indiana uh, over in Massachusetts, uh, where I spend a lot of time. Rachel Rollins would be the first black woman uh, to be the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts uh, in the Boston office. Vanessa Waldreff would be the first woman to run the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Washington, and Nicholas Brown would be the first black lawyer to run the Western District of Washington. So yes, in just these eight nominations, uh, we see a very diverse uh, field of women, people of color, um, and, and we have learned, look, in the last year, we have seen the importance of the decisions that are made in prosecutors' offices. And uh, 
the the consequences that they could have. Very often, uh, prosecutors are very closely tied to law enforcement in a way that has caused a lot of problems with respect to civil rights. So seeing a broader uh, array of folks who are nominated to these positions um, is really refreshing. Now, some of them, I'm sure, will face some opposition in confirmation for a number of reasons, but I think certainly the president has laid down a marker here. You know, inside of the U.S. attorneys community, uh, the U.S. attorneys sort of self-govern through a, a committee system that advises the attorney general. And something that you said, Kim, I want to underscore, because when you have a committee, for instance, I co-chaired the criminal practice subcommittee, Barb chaired the national security committee. When you're sitting around that table with 10 or 11 other U.S. attorneys trying to figure out how you're going to advise the attorney general or what policies you want to implement, and you have people with broadly different experience, it really impacts the outcome. And I'll, I'll just give one example. My um, subcommittee included, for instance, Sally Yates, who, like me, was a career federal prosecutor. We had very similar goals and ways of assessing situations. But it also included Jenny Dirk who was the U.S. attorney in Seattle, and she had spent most of her career in defense work. She had never been a federal prosecutor before, and her perspective radically altered the way we viewed things for the better on multiple occasions. I think this diversity is really fabulous, and it portends, um, as Barb said in, in our opening topic, that this DOJ is headed on the right track, and by the right track, I mean not what it's going to do, not outcome-oriented, but that it's just straight up the middle on the facts and the law. So, Barb, last question here to you, and I welcome Jill and Kim to chime in. So, Barb, I was in office in April of 2009 as the acting U.S. attorney and confirmed by mid-August. Obviously, the Biden nominees are on a much slower track. Do you have any sense of why these nominations are coming so late and whether that matters? You, you started to talk about it earlier, but let's expand on that. Yeah, I really don't. Um, I, I don't know why it's taking so long. Um, although I will say uh, you were among the first, Joyce. In fact, what I remember about um, starting is, you know, how you have to fill out that really detailed questionnaire about everything you've ever done in your life. Oh, it's you've awful. Ever lived and worked and everything. Um, yours was already public because you had already <laughs> been, um, you had already gone through the process. It was on the internet. And so I used yours as a template for mine. So it was very <laughs> useful to see, uh, you know, how you answered certain questions, you know, like to the best of my knowledge and, you know, just using certain language. So I knew all Here about to help, you, girlfriend. Joyce. Well before you knew me, so I had I had a dossier on you. Um, so you were among the first, and I will say this is a little slower because I think the first batch of nominees was like in May or something like that. And as you said, you were confirmed by mid-August. We had a batch, and then um, I didn't get nominated until November. I had that visit with Eric Holder, I think, in September, and I got confirmed on Christmas Eve. And I, I remember getting the call. And we all remember um, when you got confirmed. Why is that? Yeah. Well, for one, I remember getting the call that I was confirmed on Christmas Eve. You may remember that um, the Senate stayed in session until Christmas Eve to uh, um, approve the Affordable Care Act, which was kind of interesting. And then the woman at DOJ who was serving as um, legislative liaison, and I don't remember her name, I'm sorry to say. Margaret Richardson. Me. 
um, she was White House. This was for okay. legislature. Um, called me to say, hey, good news. You've just been confirmed. And I kept her on the phone because I was telling her like how happy I was. And she finally just said, look, I've got about 200 people I have to call to tell them they've got confirmed. So it's lovely talking to you and all, but I got to go. So, uh, you know, oh, oh, sure, I understand. Thank you. And I was so happy. I thought, you know, it's Christmas Eve. I can just sit back and enjoy the holidays. Uh, this is the greatest thing. Uh, I'm on easy street now. And um, the very next day was Christmas Day, and that was the day that, uh, as I was, you know, putting the ham in the oven, got a notice on my BlackBerry, the devices we used at the time, that an Al Qaeda operative had tried to blow up a plane over Detroit um, on on its approach. And so we had a bona fide Al Qaeda terrorist. Uh, he had concealed the bomb in his underwear, thus becoming known as the underwear bomber. And that was the first case that uh, of, of great significance that I worked on uh, after becoming U.S. attorney. Um, so I didn't become U.S. attorney, Joyce, then so until— So, Barb, I just have to interrupt and say um, this is the value of having experienced, qualified people at DOJ because what Barb doesn't know, and since she used my uh, uh, OGE form, I'm just going to go ahead and tell her what the scuttlebutt about her was. You know, we all knew that she had been confirmed Christmas Eve. We hadn't met her yet. And the general thinking was, well, thank God Barb McQuaid had just been confirmed in Detroit because she was actually an anti-terrorism specialist. That was her, I think I'm correct, right? Your last role was that you were the ATAC before you became the U.S. attorney. There is enormous confidence in her, and she always bore that out. Sorry to interrupt. Very nice of you to say, Joyce. But the, the point I was going to make is, it, you know, the, the whole batch of us probably didn't get on until well into that next year, uh, 2010, um, you know, by the time they got all 93 in place. So I am hopeful that this first batch means that they're going to start rolling them out now, um, because it is very important that the president have his picks in place. And, you know, it's certainly the case that the people who are acting U.S. attorneys right now, um, I I would believe, are acting with great integrity and they are moving cases and making sure uh, that the trains are moving on time. But I see their role as caretakers. Let's not forget that these first are are the former first assistants were handpicked by the Trump nominees, the Trump U.S. attorneys. And so they may just have a worldview that tends to reflect the Trump worldview as opposed to the Biden worldview. Um, And that's not to say they're going to make different decisions about justice. But what I remember Eric Holder telling me, Joyce, when I was there for that initial interview is first, what I remember is when he walked in the room, he shook my hand and said, hi, I'm Eric, which I thought was great. It wasn't, you know, Attorney General this or His Majesty that. It was Eric. And then one of the things he said to me, and he said to us repeatedly, I'm sure you remember these words, were, um, I want you to be um, community problem solvers, not just case processors. It would be very easy to sit at your desk and just process all the things that come across that agents bring to you. And that is fine, and that's part of what you do. But it's also part of the job to set the priorities of the district. And this is what we're going to work on. In the Eastern District of Michigan, we had something like 115 lawyers which gave us the resources to do about a thousand cases a year. Now, you know, give or take, depending on the size of the cases, but about a thousand cases a year. So when they're that scarce, you have to be very selective and judicious about what you're going to choose to go after. You know, is it wise to use your scarce resources to go after a bunch of marijuana cases when marijuana is now legal under Michigan law? Or is it better to use your scarce resources to go after opioids, which are killing people with overdose deaths? So, you know, being very targeted in what you're going to use those resources are is an important part of it. And you'll remember in the Obama administration, for example, um, 
some of our priorities were doing civil rights cases and doing police pattern and practice cases, which we did in Detroit. I imagine that going forward, we will see Biden U.S. attorneys doing some of those kinds of cases, voting rights cases, uh, you know, cases that matter to this president, um, being very selective and judicious in seeking mandatory minimum sentences, being judicious in seeking the death penalty. And so I think it matters who those U.S. attorneys are. And that's why I would like to see them push to get Biden's nominees in place so that they can begin leading their offices in that direction. Hey, Kim, how is Noom working out for you? You know, I have been using it every day, uh, logging my meals, which I find is interesting. I, I You always don't think about uh, what kind of food you're eating or something that may seem healthy. You may realize maybe you should uh, be moderating that or you should be eating more of something else. And Noom has been very helpful in helping me guide, uh, in guiding me through that. Um, Jill, what do you think about it? Well, Noom? I'm loving it, uh, although I am, of course, not competitive but I am jealous of the results that some of you others have had, which exceed mine. But I have to say, even in Memphis, with fabulous food, and including barbecue, which I'm sure Noom didn't like, it's the first time I didn't record my food while I was there. But I was cognizant of what you're saying, which is paying attention to red, yellow, and green foods. And I didn't gain any weight in Memphis, despite all the wonderful things I ate. So that was a really good news. And as the winner, I think, of the most lost, Joyce, what do you have to say for yourself? I think Barb and I are neck and neck on this one. But, you know, Noom has been really great, not just for me, but for my whole family. My husband and our two grown sons were all on it. We all gained a little bit too much COVID weight, and now we've taken it off. But like you, Jill, when, when Bob and I were on vacation in Maine, Um, in Portland, Maine, where the food is tempting and gorgeous and wonderful, we too managed to behave and not to gain any weight on our trip. So I'm viewing this as as really sort of resetting my relationship with food. I feel a lot better. I have a lot more energy. And I give Noom huge credit for getting giving me on that path. It's not about what you eat. It's about how you eat and understanding why you make the choices you make. The Noom app is easy to use and is a really powerful tool that shows you how to understand your cravings and build new habits to reach your goals. Noom shows you how to pursue the goals you set for yourself and make sure you reach them. Focusing on motivation and improvement, not on diet, drinks, or airbrushed expectations. No food is off limits. It's just about finding your personal balance. And if you're like us, competitive and busy, you're going to love the fact that you only have to spend 10 minutes a day reading anything from Noom. Over 80% of Noomers end up finishing the program, and more than 60% of users lose 5% or more of body weight, and 60% keep the weight off for a year or more. It does change your relationship to food. You know, Jill, I'm competitive too, and I can do it in eight minutes a day. So start building better <laughs> habits for healthier, long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash sistersinlaw. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash sistersinlaw to sign up for your Noom trial. You can also look for the link in our show notes. As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, 
please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week because we'll answer them there. Today, let's start with a question from Nancy in Virginia. She said, recently I discovered how the disabled are hampered in their voting rights. In addition, I am particularly angry that the elderly have difficulty voting absentee since they can't give their ballot to another person to drop off their ballot. How on earth do the Republicans think the elderly and the disabled living in assisted living, adult family homes, or nursing homes can deliver their ballots to a drop box or polling center? Who'd like to answer that? Well, I'll take a stab at it. Um, And I think the answer to your important question, Nancy, is that they know that it becomes virtually impossible for these folks to participate in voting. Um, This is the animus that's behind so many innocent-sounding laws. For instance, the requirement that you have certain types of state uh, officially issued identification in order to be able to vote. That might seem pretty innocuous if you've got to use your driver's license to get on board of of an airplane, but we've discussed in the past how difficult it can be for people who are older to have driver's licenses once they've stopped driving or passports when they're not people of means. Many of these restrictions make it really tough on people who are elderly or members of the disability community to vote. For instance, drive-up voting and mail-in voting are really designed to make it easier. And here's the crux of your question. It would be legitimate to impose limitations if there was some reason to believe that allowing people to vote these ways contributed to fraud. But they don't. There's no evidence of widespread systematic fraud that influences the outcome of elections. And frankly, there is very little evidence of even incidental fraud involved in voting. There are plenty of circumstantial guarantees of the trustworthiness of these ballots. Some people would say too many uh, hoops that folks have to jump through as is, and really no reason to see these uh, moves increasingly by majority Republican legislators to make it more difficult for folks in the disability community to vote. I add to that that when I was Deputy Attorney General of Illinois, we had a very active disability rights group. And and one of the things they discovered was how many impediments there are, tables that are too high or too low, buildings that don't have access even in the days of ADA when All buildings are supposed to have access, elevators that are blocked. There are so many things, machines that are used specifically for people who may have, for example, for for blind people, that no one in the um, voting uh, area can use. And they say, well, you just can't vote because we don't know how to use these machines. They intimidate us. There are so many impediments. We must take this very seriously. Our next question comes from Jane. If members of Congress or the executive branch are subpoenaed to appear before the January 6th hearings, are they required to attend? If Jim Jordan is subpoenaed, is he required to attend and can he refuse to provide any information? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. Um, yeah, the answer is yes. So the January 6th commission has full congressional subpoena power, which means they can ask people to appear. If they decline to, they can issue subpoenas uh, calling them to appear. And if they ignore that, 
uh, they can refer it to the Justice Department to prosecute uh, for obstruction of Congress. And in the past, what we saw, especially when the executive branch uh, was in the opposite party, this just wasn't enforced. But now it seems that this Justice Department is very likely uh, to to grant um, uh, the the request by members of Congress to enforce uh, these subpoenas. So yes, they have to just because you're a member of Congress or a former member of the executive, uh, you do not have special immunity to that. So you answered that question and also one from at L-A-G-B-I-L, who wanted to know about people being jailed. And now that there's a Department of Justice that will enforce those rules, they could be. Our last question for today comes from at J-D-U-B-047. Is it true that executive privilege doesn't really exist? Can Congress or prosecutors refuse to accept that excuse now or in the future? Barb, you want to take a stab? Yeah, I'll take a stab, but I want to hear your thoughts on this too, Jill. Your Watergate experience, I think, makes you the queen of executive privilege. Um, it, I don't know if it's JW 47 um, You're right that it doesn't exist in that it is not spelled out or written in the Constitution, and there is not a statute on this. It is a judge-created doctrine, but it is one that is strongly suggested by the concept of separation of powers, that the two branches have to accommodate each other. Um, and so uh, we saw in the Nixon case during Watergate with regard to the tapes that the courts did recognize this concept of executive privilege, the idea that uh People working for the president should have the ability to um, make decisions uh, without worrying about someone looking over their shoulder, to give candid advice. Um, But it was not absolute, that it had to yield under certain circumstances uh, under kind of a balancing test. And, you know, in the Watergate case, of course, it was a criminal investigation where they said that the privilege had to yield because a grand jury was seeking this information and the grand jury is entitled to every, quote, man's evidence. Um, And in this instance... Uh, most recently, DOJ has said that the January 6th insurrection was an extraordinary circumstance uh, that caused the privilege to yield. But Jill, um, I'm sure you have insights about that from your own experience in Watergate. Well, you have very, very astutely summarized exactly the state of the law, which is that it is a system that allows people to have to respond that no man is above the law, no woman is above the law either, and that the president can be required to produce evidence when there is no alternative source for that information. And that was the basis uh, for the U.S. v. Nixon decision that allowed my office to get the tape recordings of the president. It is interesting because people forget that there were two plaintiffs originally And that was Congress wanted it as well. And they didn't get it. They got the information because we turned it over to them after our grand jury acquired it. Um, But the court said in a criminal case, there is a higher priority that has to be given to allow the disclosure of even confidential information. It is a very valuable privilege, the executive privilege, and it is true that presidents rely on confidential information. But it's sort of like the attorney-client privilege, where there is a crime-fraud exception. If you're committing a crime, you can't then claim that it's executive privilege and that you don't have to turn it over. And when we selected the tapes to subpoena, 
we were very careful in selecting tapes where we could make a very credible argument to the court that the conversations were in furtherance of a crime, that they weren't political in nature, that they weren't policy related. And so people need to keep that in mind. Executive privilege does apply when it's policy and politics. It doesn't apply when you're committing crimes or planning an insurrection. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. This week's sponsors are Girlfriend Collective, Function of Beauty, Fast Growing Trees, and Noom. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode Hashtag sisters in law. He's such a nice man. Whenever I've nice met, I did used not to work confuse with him. Barb and me, though. He couldn't yeah, keep well, us straight. Welcome to the club, right? Uh, That's wins? great. Some of our early listeners were not alone. Oh, all oh, the time. I was like in an airport with my husband once when a woman approached me. She was like, oh, Miss McQuaid, I'm such a huge fan. <laughs> and Bob is like, dude, what is going on? I got it in a Michigan I... football game in Ann Arbor. Like, Joyce fans, what? we love you. <laughs> Joyce fans. Oh, you just cannot I, I imagine. Just, I just take it. I smile and wave. I had it during oh physical God. therapy in Birmingham after my shoulder surgery where a woman who was there with her football player kid who was getting rehabbed came over and said, oh, Barb, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan. It's like, I'm in Birmingham. Come on. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs>